Good morning, church. Do you feel equipped to understand and engage the rapidly changing culture? This morning's passage identifies the conflict that comes from the authority and advancement of the kingdom of God. The authorities of our culture hear and fear when the authority of King Jesus is on display. Today's passage will equip on the faithful and fruitful culture engagement. Hear the word of the Lord. We'll be reading from Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. Read along with me in your Bible or on the screen. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in a prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom and she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Stay up here when we pray, brother. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word together, to sit under its authority. Lord, we confess that we desperately need your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, and we stand together as one asking for you to have mercy on us this morning. We want to worship you through rightly humbling ourselves before you, but also, Lord, being open to what you want to do in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 6. 
And we are uh, going to study a pretty interesting passage, right? Um, if you don't come to church much, uh, maybe you don't come often and, and you hear a, a, a passage about a beheading, you might be wondering, what have I walked into, right? <laughs> Yeah, this is not your normal passage for back to school motivational talk, right? Hey, so anyway, this guy got beheaded. Let's pray and have a great year, right? <laughs> but it's interesting about what we see in this passage, isn't it? I mean, we see a king who's super insecure, uh, so insecure that he's uh, swayed by the dancing of a teenage girl. A woman, Herodias, who wants to cover her sin and shame so desperately that she has a guy uh, beheaded through the manipulation of the powers in her world. It's actually something that demonstrates the confusion and the incoherence that comes when humans who have legitimate longings, that is for security and for our shame to be covered and, and for acceptance, when we look for those things in places of our culture that are in direct conflict with the authority of King Jesus. It turns out that this story that seems extreme and beheading, and it is, actually has tremendous applicability for your life, for your family, for your work, for living in your neighborhood, for you as a man or a woman, uh, for all of us in humanity. You see, the context of this passage is the advancement of the authority of King Jesus. And when you look down at the passage, we're going to walk through this. Uh, we see it uh, in verse 14. It says that King Herod heard of it. What is it? Well, it is everything that comes before it. Jesus had been demonstrating the authority of the kingdom, and it had been advancing most recently through his disciples. And if you look at verse 13, you see how his disciples were casting out demons. They were anointing many who were sick, and they healed them. The authority of the message of the kingdom and the messenger of Jesus had reached the ears of the authority of that region, a guy named King Herod, who was so insecure, he didn't know what to do. And it is, uh, this, this, this context reveals to us really uh, an invitation that you and I have to participate in, in one of two different rules or authorities. Either the authority and the rule of King Jesus or the authority and the rule of the authorities of our culture. Too often, uh, we are a people, Christians, who have insecure identities. We find our identities in what we have or what we could do. We allow ourselves to be shaped by the authority and the authorities of our culture, and we forfeit the opportunity that we have to engage this world in a redemptive way from a secure identity and under the true authority, Jesus Christ. And the grace of God today invites us all to be restored and renewed, to re-engage the purposes that God has for me and for you. Do you believe that you can get a renewed sense of purpose out of a story of a beheading? You can. And you will. Lord, give us ears to hear. Many of us are familiar with the passage from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. In view of God's mercy, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. 
Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but in view of God's mercy to be transformed. God's authority that's demonstrated in Mark to this point through the person and work of Jesus and his disciples and his teaching is designed to transform you and to transform me individually. And through a collective group of transformed individuals, we have a redeemed and transformed community with the task to go out and to celebrate the authority of King Jesus and engage culture in a redemptive way. We are redeemed people that redeem place for the glory of God. In the beheading of John the Baptist, we could look at it from two places, right? On the one hand, is, is this an example of how not to engage the authorities of the world? Did John the Baptist really mess up and just end up with his head on a tray? Or is it a warning for those of us who want to take the purpose that we have seriously? We're going to see three quick things from this passage. First is this, that the authorities of our culture are going to hear about the authority of King Jesus. Uh, it's very clear uh, King Herod heard of it, that is the authority of Jesus that was advancing through his disciples, for Jesus' name had become known. Uh, the healing, the preaching, the teaching, the sending, uh, news of this king who redeemed and restored had reached the door of King Herod. The one who was a really a puppet leader established by the Roman government in this region, who was responsible for kind of the peace of the area. It's interesting that so many people up to this point have either A, received the rule of King Jesus, or B, rejected the rule of King Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus was teaching in his hometown of Capernaum, and they rejected him and his teaching. But there were some who believed and had faith and were healed. And when he sent out his disciples, he sent them out two by two and he told them, some will receive you, stay in those places, others will reject you. And those who do, knock the dust off your feet and move on. And here we see a king who hears and he doesn't believe. He and his house reject the authority of Jesus. But the second thing we see is not just that the authorities of the culture here, but the authorities of the culture are very confused. Now, it's really clear in this passage of the end of 14 through 16. Look, with, look at it with me. Uh, Herod, some said, oh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But then others said he's Elijah and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. The culture has very clear, irrational assumptions when they hear of the authority of King Jesus. Is it John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is it a prophet from old? Is this Elijah? What is going on? And they draw irrational conclusions. And then it's very clear that they, they're, they're questioning. And they have false conclusions and convictions. Now, I'm not sure if you have already begun to see the parallels between what we're going to study and the culture that we have. You don't have to listen hard to our culture to understand that there is a tremendous amount of confusion. That, in fact, questioning is a designated and received label by many people in our culture today. 
that there is a boatload of false convictions that have illogical routes to come to the conclusion that they come to. We don't have to listen hard to realize that there is identification with Herod and his house in this place. Now we need to understand uh, the narrative that we read about John the Baptist is actually background for these two verses. Because John the Baptist comes to the false conclusion, uh, excuse me, Herod comes to the false conclusion that Jesus is actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's already beheaded him. And this story is an explanation about what happened in the beheading. Now, the main players are essential to understand. Uh, king Herod is not the King Herod that you read about in the birth of Jesus. That was Herod the Great, uh, Herod Antipas's father. And when King Herod of the uh, uh, nativity story heard about Jesus being born, you remember what he did? He heard from the wise men that a king of kings had been born. And, and, and what did that guy do? He ordered all of the children born in the last two years to be slaughtered. So it turns out that being an insecure king runs in his family. One of his sons, Herod Antipas, is this guy. And we're going to see the level of his insecurity. Later, we're going to see when he actually meets Jesus face to face in Mar Matthew 14, he's actually a vehicle to send Jesus to the cross. Now, his, he married, Herod Antipas married his brother's wife. Now, I'm from southern Appalachia. It might not be as much a surprise, a surprise, you know, when we read about a family tree, like literally with no branches. Like, I come from a place where a famous song is called, I am my own grandpa, okay? Like, look it up, it's true, all right? But other people might hear this and be like, what? Yeah, so Herodias was Herod's wife and his brother's wife. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's a dysfunctional family. <laughs> and John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. And he's a prophet we're first introduced to in Mark when John the Baptist is in the wilderness and throngs of people are coming to him. He actually is the one who baptized Jesus. When John the Baptist first met Jesus, he was in the womb of his mama, Elizabeth, 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 and Elizabeth. And when she saw Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, we read about John the Baptist actually worshiping in the womb. We got to be reminded that life begins at conception and people even in the womb can worship Jesus. But that was John the Baptist. And he was called by Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived, Matthew 11, 9 to 11. But Herod was this puppet and insecure leader who was intimidated by a dude, John the Baptist, who wore camel hair, who had a locust diet with a little bit of honey on the side, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but he spoke the truth of God. And so the authorities of our culture, they, they hear of the authority of Jesus. And there's a clear confusion and questioning. But the opposition is clear. And this is what we see in the narrative, okay? Opposition comes, we see first on a personal level. Uh, uh, when it gets into the story, we read this, um, verse 17. 
Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, that's his wife, his brother Philip's wife too, by the way, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, the wife of Philip and Herod, had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted him put to death. It's a very personal sense of opposition. The, the, the context, is, it's the battle of authority. Again, let's make a cultural parallel. It's about marriage and the definition of marriage. Can Herod do whatever feels right to him and marry whoever he wants to? Or does God have a different design? And John the Baptist speaks the truth of God's word. In this case, in Leviticus, it's clear that you are not allowed to marry your brother's wife. Again, this is not news to many of us, but for those of us from Southern Appalachia, we're like, wow, that's revolutionary. Just kidding, just kidding. Okay? But God has a design for marriage, and the response of the opposition is extremely personal. Herodias wants that public shame silenced. How? Cut the head off that guy. Stop him from speaking. Kill him. And we have the advantage as God's people, because we know something the world doesn't. That the ultimate cosmic battle, it's not against people and people. The battle's not against flesh and blood, but it's against darkness and principalities and what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, powers of this present evil age. And so, Christians are free to not launch grenades and throw personal attacks back. It's interesting that uh, the opposition is ethical, excuse me, I had that wrong, and personal. They come right at John, but it's this ethical question of how do we live? And John doesn't come back with policies. He doesn't say if we only had new policies. He doesn't come back with a new party or a person. He doesn't say if we only had a right party up there, everything would be okay. He doesn't throw grenades. He doesn't start calling him names. He doesn't start insulting him. John speaks the word of God. Why? Because the security that we have in our identity as God's people helps us to follow the teaching of Jesus, who says that we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Popularized, this is that we separate the rebellion that we see all through our culture from the rebels who are rejecting God's authority. And we see them as image bearers of God that we are called to love and that Jesus died for. And so this personal opp opposition is turned for us into an opportunity that we can engage this world. This is power for Christians. And I will confess. It gets very wearying. It's easy to quit and just stop and conform. It's easy to, to feel the, the powers and authorities of our culture and just surrender and allow for them to shape us. It's easier to follow the desires of my heart, the desires of my appetite, than it is to truly hunger and thirst for the word of God, for righteousness, and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. 
I confess, I'm with you on that territory. And that's why I think it's essential that we understand the anatomy of this opposition that is offered to us in this passage. Because we are like too often lambs just going into slaughter and we don't know what we're up against. And I want to empower you in your homes, in your parenting, in your families, at work, in your classrooms, as you go to school, what does it mean to know how this opposition is going to come questioning you on an ethical level? How do we live? Attacking you on a personal level. Here's what it looks like. The opposition progressive subtly. It's actually a really slow burn. Look at the setup. Uh, verse um, for John had been saying to Herod uh, for, uh, anyway, where is this? Where's his birthday? 21. The opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. Now look, birthdays are great. I love birthdays. Raise your hand if you love birthdays. Yes. All right. Birthdays are fun. We love to be celebrated, don't we? Uh, I had uh, one of our children. We love to celebrate our kids on birthdays. You might have heard me say this before, but uh, we, we, I said one time on a birthday, I said, okay, we're going to say to this child, I won't say the name, um, but we're going to, all of us are going to say something that we love and uh, are excited about in this child's life. And the kid whose birthday it was said, that's a great idea. Can I start? <laughs> All right. So birthdays are a time when we are, you know, we, we, we focus on ourselves. It's easy to be focused on ourselves on our birthdays. But we've created a culture where all of life revolves around our self. This is the setup. The setup is to make ourselves the center of the world. And, you know, we do this in tons of different ways. But the system that the opposition has is actually through your self-focus and social pressure. Look at this in verse 21. Uh, the opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for who? For nobles, military commanders, and leading people of Galilee. There were people of influence there. And the opportunity came through this social pressure that was self-focused through Herod that wanted to manipulate him to cut off the truth of God's word. Do you see? This is the setup and the system. And how is the heart swayed? Through sensuality. Sensuality sways the heart. The culture, the opposition, will be perverse in order to coerce you to conform. You see what happened in this passage? That Herodias, who had been looking for this opportunity to silence the truth of God, uses sensuality. This is a stag party. It's all dudes. And who does she send in to capture the heart of Herod? Her daughter, a teenager. Herod calls her a girl. The word would be teenager. And you know what she does? She dances. She exposes herself vulnerably, showing skin, moving her body, capturing the imagination of these men, and uses perversion for coercion. And nobody would feel like it's right to send a young teenage girl into a group of men who were rulers and used to get what they want. That's perverse. It's wrong. 
but there's perversion for coercion. And then there's the surrender. After the sensuality is sway, there's surrender. And Herod says something. He says, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, this is ironic because he doesn't have a kingdom to give. That's not the kind of king he is. It's also ironic because the language that he uses echoes Esther. When Esther made a plan to save and redeem God's people, the king at her banquet, which was done in a righteous way, actually made the same offer. And what did she do? She went back and asked her mom, Herodias, who said, I want truth silenced. I want God's word gone. I want you to bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, John Wesley is a famous uh, church man in history, and he has a line. He says that you can bury God's messenger, but God's message will never stop. And many of us uh, can identify with Herod that the sensuality that coerces has led people, men in particular, to wave a white flag in surrender, to allow the culture to shape us and conform us into its pattern. And this isn't just in regards to sensuality. Friends, this is in regards to silencing truth. We don't want to hear the truth of what God says about our relationships, about how we date, about how we marry, We don't want to hear the truth of what God says about how we use our money. We don't want to hear the truth of what God says about how we love people and serve people. We don't want to hear the truth. It doesn't feel good. And we have been seduced and coerced, and that has captured us. This is what we're up against. And you have to understand, this is a slow burn, a subtle attack. And Satan will oppose the truth of God with a really long view. And it's a degree of compromise that begets compromise. And while we see the opposition that progresses subtly, what we have to understand and remember is the context of this chapter that the gospel subverts completely. You see, John John the Baptist came as one who fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 40, that there would be one who would proclaim, prepare the way for the Lord, that the Messiah would come. And this is exactly what he did. It's remarkable because as this story supports the irrational questioning and conclusion that the king has when he hears of the authority of King Jesus that's been proclaimed and advanced, that John the Baptist has been raised from the grave, that this death is not the end of the story. That the story of opposition to the truth is always part of uh, just the backdrop of the glory that comes when the true prophet of God, the true word of God, dies for our sins and is raised from the grave. He is one uh, that was attacked, Jesus Christ, by the authorities of Rome and the public opinion of his day, and he went to the cross to pay for our sins of rejecting his word, of compromising and allowing the opposition to 
capture our hearts in many ways. Jesus came not to condemn, but to forgive. Jesus came that we might have life and life abundantly. The gospel subverts completely. How? First, we get captured by a self-focus. Jesus restores and renews by a savior focus. The savior focus of our life heals. Uh, did you know that uh, a stat came out two weeks ago? The average amount of time that Americans spend on their phones, you know how much it is a day? Four hours and 20 something minutes every day on our phones. Now, some of that's really productive. Phones should be and can be, must be used for the glory of God. But a lot of it is self-focused. A lot of it is self-promoting. A lot of it is self-justifying. Over four hours a day, that's more than one day a week. That's more than four days a month. That's more than 50-something days a year when you do all the math. You're like, I was on the impression there'd be no math involved. I came to worship Jesus. What's going on here? <laughs> Friends, the opposition is subtle. We have got to set a wedge as Christians. The opportunity is to be savior focused. And I want to challenge you to take a Sabbath from your social media. Put it down at night. Don't look at it first thing in the morning. Let your savior be the focus of your heart. Get into the word before you get into the word of text and emails. Let Jesus set your agenda rather than somebody who has some perceived urgency, whether it's some fake news headline or, or somebody trying to sell you something and increase their own bottom line. Let the king of kings shape your hearts in the mornings. Take a day off every week. Reverse the trend. Don't give a day of your week to your phone. Let the savior take the center, the throne of your heart. We have to unplug so that we recharge on God's grace. Let's say your focus heals. But second, the social pressure that we see that is used in opposition actually becomes social support. Here's the truth, Christian, trying to stand alone at your work. Christian, trying to stand alone in your school. Christian, trying to stand alone in your neighborhood. You are not alone. The dysfunctional family of Herod is not the end of the story. Do you believe me when I say that God can and will redeem every dysfunction in every family when we put our trust and hope in him? Do you believe it? He will. And you're not alone because he gives us a redeemed family. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ that won't be used as tools of, of the opposition, but will be used as tools of sanctification that we might know his grace more fully, to serve him more faithfully, and that he might use us more fruitfully, not to retreat from culture, but to engage culture redemptively. Because I agree with Abraham Kuyper, who says that Jesus Christ looks at this world and he says that there's not one square inch where this is not mine. Everything belongs to Jesus. He's king over everything. All that is seen, all that is unseen, all the powers, principalities, darkness, every domain is under his rule and reign. And we're not alone in living for that glory in everything. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10 31, that even in the details of eating and drinking, we can live for the glory of God. Thanks be to his name for that purpose. The social pressure that is used at the stag party is transformed when hearts are given to Jesus. It can be a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a family of God that we can live for the glory of God. And finally, the key to victory. <laughs> Surrender. Herod surrendered to the opposition that came through his dysfunctional marriage and family. We must surrender to a greater authority. That is Jesus Christ and his grace. 
We must surrender to Jesus as Lord and King. We must surrender and not live and bow our knee and bow our hearts to the authorities of this culture, the uh, financial authorities, the relational authorities, the sexual authorities, the, the, uh, the political authorities, the, the governing authorities. We cannot surrender and bow our knee to those things. We must receive the invitation to bow our hearts and our knees to King Jesus. This is the opportunity because King Jesus subverts every authority of this world. But here's the reality ending where we begin, that he actually fulfills everything we're looking for. You see the irony of this? Herodias, she had shame. She had married two guys from the same family. She wanted the truth that was being proclaimed to silence. Stop pointing out my shame. All she had to do was turn to Jesus. We're covered in sin. Everything we have is tainted by it, but Jesus forgives sin. He didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive. And I would say that she could only find, we can only find, you and I can only find what we're longing for when we look to Christ. Herod, this guy had all the power in that area. He was still insecure. You think your promotion is going to give you security? You think more influence is going to give you security? Do you think more money is going to give you security? Do you think more material things is going to give you security? No. Herod missed it. Jesus, his authority not only subverts the authorities of this world, but it also is the only thing that can truly satisfy the longings of our hearts. Jesus is the answer, and he's there for everyone who chooses to believe. Redeeming our culture is the opportunity. And John the Baptist is not an example of doing it poorly. He might be a warning for people who choose to try to stand for truth in a world of questioning confusion. We might lose our heads, but Jesus is king over time as well. And there is an eternity. There are treasures that we can build up in heaven. There is a greater glory that is worth giving our lives for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gave your life for us. You saw a greater joy than comfort. That for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and scorned its shame. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel, that you who were king became servant, obedient to death, even death on a cross. So those of us who serve the kings of our culture can find forgiveness of our sins and that we can turn and begin again. Holy Spirit, would you please revive in the hearts of your people the purpose that we have, the works that you've prepared in advance for us, that we can engage culture redemptively. On the one hand, allowing your authority and your word to subvert the authorities of this world, but on the other hand, being ambassadors of your grace and your love and helping those who are longing for life to find what they're looking for only in Jesus Christ. We love you, we thank you, and we praise your name. Jesus, in your name we pray. All God's people said, amen.